0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday, January 9th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico.
1: Welcome back, everybody.
0: Stephanie Armour, The Wall Street Journal. Glad to be here. And Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Happy New Year, Julie. Later in this episode, we will have our Bill of the Month interview. This week, Richard Harris of NPR tells us about a really, really big bill for some pretty routine lab tests for a woman with, wait for it, a nasty cold. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So, Happy New Year, ladies. I thought we would devote our news segment this week to stuff you might have missed over the holidays, even if you were actually watching the news, because, you know, other stuff has kind of dominated the headlines. Joanne, you warned us this might happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, every time we say... (laughs) <laughs> is health care going to be the dominant issue, I keep saying? Who knows what's going to happen in the world?
0: That's right. Well, first, Republicans' continuing effort to overturn the Affordable Care Act. When we last met, a federal appeals court panel in New Orleans kind of punted on the case. They ruled that the individual mandate, whose penalty has been reduced to zero by Congress, is nonetheless still unconstitutional. But rather than specifically agreeing or disagreeing with the lower court judge who said that that finding should render the rest of the health law null and void, the appeals court sent the case back to the lower court judge to, quote, employ a finer toothed comb in determining which parts of the law can stand and which have to go. The Democratic plaintiffs in the case, meanwhile, say this is just a stalling tactic. Indeed, it could take up to three years for this case to finish uh, at the lower court's and the Democratic attorneys general have now officially a petitioned the Supreme Court to take the case and hear it this term. That could put a decision right smack in the middle of the campaign. So is this a good idea for the Democrats or a bad idea? I mean how how is this going to cut politically? We Depending just don't know what what's going
1: to happen. I mean I think when we saw the uh, petition the other day from the state, from the Democrats, uh, you know, asking the Supreme Court to to act quickly, I think all of us, you know, in, in – Harmony all rushed to Nick Bagley's Twitter feed. <laughs> and, you know, is the court going to do this? And, you know, Nick, who is a law professor at the University of Michigan, I think many of our listeners also follow his Twitter feed. And um, he's been on the podcast. Yes. he You know, his insightful response was, maybe. Um, we just don't know what's going to happen. The pros and cons are the, the court tends not to intervene unless they let things run through the, the, the usual process. They let things go through the lower courts. It could take two or three years. Um, that is the Standard um, approach of the court. On the other hand, it only takes uh, four justices, not five, to t- decide to take a case. But it takes five to take it this term. And the dynamic is such that if President Trump is reelected, the dynamics of what the court could look like and what constraints change. And over the over the coming years, and so there's some people who just think they might take it now. Um, my hunch is they won't, but I wouldn't put a lot of money on it. I mean, it's just a hunch.
0: I feel like the, the betting is that the four liberals think they have Chief Justice Roberts on their side because he has twice upheld or he, you know, he's twice ruled against other lawsuits challenging the ACA, which most legal experts thought had far more legal merit than this one does. So I This guess- one
1: has um, – even some of the conservatives who fought to strike the ACA in the prior cases think this one is just legally does not hold water.
2: And the politics are a little bit topsy-turvy because you see the eagerness of the Democrat-led states to get a ruling. And you'd actually think the opposite. I mean, they're very worried about the benefits of the ACA being overturned. So why potentially hasten that day? But I think the optics of it are pretty good for Democrats this year and pretty terrible for Republicans. And so you saw a pretty muted response from Republicans. They don't seem particularly eager for the Supreme Court necessarily to take this up, although I don't think the Trump administration or the GOP-led states have wait, in yet they have have until Friday to do that. So.
3: I also think one thing that's sort of interesting is some of the supporters of Medicare for All have also been quietly, I believe, hoping that it gets taken up because there's some sense that if, I know it's it's odd, but there's some sense that if the AC, ACA gets knocked down, they believe that there'll be this wave that will then propel Medicare for All forward. There'll be a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's sort of an interesting political dynamic out there. The other Interesting thing is, there's been really, if you notice in the debates, there hasn't been a huge focus on um, this lawsuit or sort of the what the argument of the midterms in terms of Republicans and this threat to health care. But you're starting to see a little bit of that change, I think, after this case. Like, um, what the, uh, there were a lot more statements that came out. You look at um, Mike Bloomberg's ad where he posted it specifically, like with Trump saying, "Let it fail." Um, so I you're seeing a little bit more of that. I don't know how much traction it will get in the next debate. But. I was surprised because the last debate was the day after the case was Correct. decided. Yeah. And there
0: was almost not no, no, even a mention. No.
1: There was a reality check though, because I mean we did ask them I mean Politico is a co-sponsor of that debate and, and one of the questions that did get asked is, you know, the candidates are talking about what they're going to do if they win. Assuming that, that they can do it with 51 votes. And they're assuming that the Democrats will control the Senate. And they're assuming they would have all the votes of all the Democrats. Um, <laughs> Both really, really big assumptions. Right. I mean, at this point, I mean, things are in flux. I mean, we are in the 18-second, you know, the 24-second you know, news cycle. Who, you, we None of us know whose hands, the, you know, which party will control the Senate. But right now it looks more likely that it will still be a Republican-controlled Senate. That is the sort of conventional wisdom at the moment, in which case if you're not going to get Medicare for all through a Republican-controlled Senate, <laughs> Senate. And what can you do? You're what, not going to probably
0: do? get Medicare for all through a Democratic-controlled Senate either if they have 51 or 52 votes. Right, because we and can all think of, of the- a few
1: who are not necessarily yeah. going to jump up and down and embrace it. But um, this lawsuit You know, on one hand, we've gotten – we and the – more importantly, the insurance industry has gotten so used to uncertainty that uncertainty is now certainty. I mean the only thing about the ACA is you don't know what's going to happen next, which I guess is sort of true of everything in our current political environment. I mean just think about that one day, right? We started that day with the drug importation rule. The impeachment vote was in the House. And the individual mandate case was that night, and as you know, Julie knows. I said that day, I felt like the news was being brought to us. You know, Sesame Street and the letter I. Yeah. The the um, and then now we have Iran. But the sort of the pace and chaos means it's just hard to focus on a hypothetical court ruling that could not happen for three years. Before we leave this, I want to go back
0: to something that Paige said, because this was one of my questions. With abortion cases, it tends when they get decided, you know, at the end of the Supreme Court term in June, and there's, you're in an election year, um, it tends, the loser tends to get more of a political bounce from it, because angry people are more likely to go to the polls than people who are okay with the status quo, which makes me wonder a little bit about the, the Democrat strategy, because one would think that they wouldn't really want to lose. <laughs> they wouldn't be doing this if they thought they were really going to lose. I think they're doing this because they think this might be their last chance to win, um, particularly if Trump gets reelected. So I wonder about sort of the skewed politics, because if it gets upheld, won't that then give a bounce to to Republicans who really wanted to see the law go
2: away? Yeah, that's – I don't know. That's a really good question. But I mean if you look back at – was it 2017 when they tried to do the ACA repeal efforts? You saw Democrats kind of have a bounce after that. Um, I guess they were – technically the winners. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point.
0: That is a fair Um, point. And
2: Republicans were the losers, but Democrats were still able to leverage that and point the finger and say, this is what Republicans would have done and this is what they tried to do. So I think they probably could still try to turn that same thing. Look, Republicans tried to overturn the AC even if they didn't ultimately succeed in that. I think polls
3: show it's still quite popular. I mean, it's still hovering around 50 percent, more popular than it was a number of years ago. So Democrats also have that going for them.
1: I mean, I think there's two things. One, I think, some of the intensity um, among the Republicans opposing the HSA has fizzled. It's not that they love it, but remember the individual mandate is gone. The taxes are gone. Um, the, the individual mandate is, uh, technically the individual, individual mandate is still there, but the penalty is gone, which is what.
2: You know, Every time I make that mistake of right. not clarifying yeah, that, right. I get very angry right. emails so, from all you right. great folks. So wonky the individual folks.
1: mandate <laughs> penalty is gone, which was the single least popular thing in the law. There are alternatives in some states that people can buy non-compliant, cheaper plans. Um, the, the things that people really hated aren't there, so that so that even though the base doesn't like it. It's not sort of the identity of the Republican politics right now because the Republicans don't have another plan they're offering. It's sort of they've been quite silent, noticeably silent for a while. So, I don't. I mean, I still think the Republican base wants it repealed, but I don't think it's like, a, you know, a driving
3: passion for Republican voters the way it was before. Also, the law is showing itself remarkably resilient right, despite right. Um, a lot of the prognostications about what right. was going to happen. So, I also think. Democrats feel like they have that going. And the second
1: point that related is that for the Republicans, ha, not having the court rule is the best of all possible worlds politically, because they can say, "See, you have coverage. You have your pre-existing conditions." They can say that to the general public: nothing, you're not threatened in any way, you're protected. And at the same time, they can tell the base, those who are still intensely motivated, oh, you know, we're fighting in the court. We're going to get rid of it in the courts.
3: So you know, I don't they know, can though. Sort of say, I mean, the 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 oh, Democrats really got a bounce by saying in the midterms that. The there was a threat here, and I think that if the case is still pending, they can. When we pivot yeah. to the general election, but that the Democratic you're going to health message that. is so muddled right now because they're. But their you know, message could just be: Look, we're not. We, you know, the, we're not a threat to health healthcare. It could be there. Right, but I think the public conversation switched to cost, not coverage. Yeah, I I yeah. do too. But, I do well. Yeah, I th- but I also think we're going to see that pivot in the general.
0: But to your point about how resilient the law has been, one of the one of the arguments in the court case is that well, we that the entire rest of the law has to fall because the law cannot stand without the individual mandate and its penalty. And it's like, okay, the law's been without the penalty for the last year, and it's standing just fine. I mean, it's it's sort of it's standing okay. Well, yeah, but the idea that it can't, I mean, that you have to strike down the rest of the law because it can't function without it. It is functioning without it. Um, So that's sort of a a mystery here, too. But we will will definitely come back to this. Um, I want to talk at least briefly about abortion, because that's also likely to be one of the bigger political issues of 2020. Uh, 200 members of Congress, including 80 percent of Republicans in the House, have signed on to a legal brief urging the Supreme Court to use the Louisiana law that's now before it, which is substantially similar to a. Texas law that the court struck down in 2016 uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's the case that guaranteed a woman's basic right to abortion nationwide. Now, this is far from the first time members of Congress have weighed in on abortion cases that are before the high court, and Democrats have filed their own brief in this case as well. Um, The case concerns a requirement that doctors who perform abortions have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. But the number of Republicans who've signed on here is big even by historical standards. And unlike the Affordable Care Act, where who knows what might happen, it's pretty clear that the Supreme Court now has five pretty solid anti-abortion votes. So what could happen here? I mean, do, we don't think the court's actually going to use this case to overturn Roe v. Wade, do we?
2: No, even like anti-abortion groups admit that's probably not going to be the case, but they still are kind of putting that out there. I think this brief the members of Congress sign was authored by Americans United for Life and um, this this conversation has been there. One thing I'd like to clarify though is if, you know, if Roe v. Wade and this is sort of a, a misconception I think a lot of people have, the result if Roe was overturned, would actually likely be that you'd see a huge divide among the red and the blue states in terms of of abortion restrictions. Which we're already seeing. Right, exactly. But you'd see even more of that, of course. You could see total restrictions in the Republican-led states and then – Things may not change very much in the Democrat-led state, so. But I think the the question here is how broad the the court might go because when they ruled four years ago on this Texas law, I, I think it was a pretty narrow ruling. So it didn't apply nationwide; it just applied in Texas. And I presume that's why they're taking it up again to sort of. Consider well, no, it, more did broad broad. it did apply nationwide. Did apply nationwide, but part they of it, it, they did can though, make right? it. They
1: can. It was under Casey, not Roe. Really, it was. It was the. Um, the, ops, many, you know, the undue burden. Uh, yeah, it, and, the, the undue
0: burden, though, in that, you're right. In that case, they said they the undue burden analysis was just for Texas. Right. But they did say that that was an undue burden.
1: Right, they did. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so they could narrowly rule in this case that the geography of the providers and the clinics in Louisiana is different than the geography and how far you'd have to travel in Texas, where it was like 500 miles for some people in Texas to get to the nearest clinic. So they could do anything they want, but they could uphold Louisiana. Louisiana, despite having overturned Texas on a very narrow Louisiana-specific case. Although... Um, and that's sort of the, the conventional wisdom for what it's worth is that that's what they're going to do, that they will uphold Louisiana, So without, come up with an argument for right. why it's okay in Louisiana, why it wasn't okay in Texas, having to do with where the clinics are and the size of the state and transportation and how many clinics and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, but... yeah, that's a little strange,
2: isn't it? Because like in Louisiana, it's even... More of an extreme situation than it was in Texas, where you still had some abortion clinics, right. and I think the thought is now this law would force the only remaining clinic. Well, to and close. this is one of the big questions is whether uh, whether you can take into account the fact uh, how near
3: clinics are in other states. Yeah. So true, right? And there are and six I mean, states it, yeah. now just with the one clinic, so yeah. it's got. And I don't think they're all even open full
1: time. I think some no. of them like have you know a doctor who, who, who flies, know, flies in one in day for, or we, Yeah. yeah. Um, so so I mean the court could narrowly uphold it by making some kind of argument about why Louisiana is different than Texas and why the statute, and, you know, in minor ways is different than the Texas statute. I don't think people really expect them to rule against it. But, you know, you, you, there are issues with precedent and the court doesn't really overturn precedent that lightly. And, and this they, was they,
0: a pretty recent, I mean, the yeah. Texas case was and they, and they actually
1: could, I mean, I agree with Paige that if or when they do overturn Rowan, that's not a certainty that they will go that far, that it would mostly likely go back to the 1973 up to the state's rules, but there are scenarios where they could go further. And actually, I mean, there are legal scholars who think that the court could actually even go further than then reversing Roe. That they could take it another step forward. But of course, that's you know the people on the one side depict what the other side can do. And you know that dynamic is always you look for the most extreme case and get your people it excited means about it. That
3: abortion will remain a hot button issue in. Right. the a political debate. That, I mean, was, this that was my next question. June, yeah, it's I mean, always going to be
1: for the rest of our lives. It does seem true, like, but oh.
3: I think it, it's it's it potentially has the ability to polarize and also. Get voters out on both sides in terms of turnout, which is where it could be important. It has
1: been a turnout issue for the Republicans. Yes, it's yes. Been it an has amazing not been turnout. such a turnout issue for the, for the Democrats because they didn't really say it was threatened. And now I believe that they will see it more threatened because look at what's going on in the states and the makeup of the court. But whether that perception turns into a um, you know motivation for a particularly younger women to actually go vote, we don't know. I mean, if they were to rule
2: on Roe, that would be a pretty extreme step. And there's a lot of sort of incremental things that they could take up before that. Like, for instance, I'm curious as to whether this newly conservative majority is going to eventually hear these laws restricting abortions after 20 weeks. They didn't take
1: up Arizona, which was 18. Right.
2: But that was a couple couple of years
1: ago. Was it last last year two years ago? Yeah,
0: I think that was before Um, they had this majority.
1: But um,
2: I would be surprised if the anti-abortion groups weren't making that kind of a top priority because that that would certainly be one of their top priorities in the states, and it it's their top to priority the in court, Congress, even right. though it can't pass there. Right? Yeah. And so it just seems like that would be a more of a, more of a likely case for the court to take up. But
1: and there, are, 20, how many yeah. states now who've passed that? Like fifteen or something? It's, it's eighteen. 18. Yeah. It's it's a fine. Fine. yeah. So There's a 20 cases. And 20. There are plenty of cases, cases in the pipeline. Yes. They there, pl- there are about. lots, of which and I think said. a lot of us thought they might this year, and they didn't. So yeah. I mean, the fact that they didn't take one of those or they didn't take something that they went for a state law that is relatively narrow rather than looking for the most dramatic, broadest one, is a sign that they're going to only take one bite of this particular apple at the moment.
0: We'll see. All right. Well, let's move on. Um, While most of us were celebrating with our families, the Trump administration announced its ban on vape flavors, an effort to keep e-cigarettes out of the hands of teenagers. But as seemed likely late last year, and we did talk about this, it is not the ban that public health officials were hoping for. Not only won't it apply to menthol flavors, it won't apply to so-called open tank systems. Those are the ones typically sold by vape shops. Uh, Not coincidentally, vape shop owners have been loudly protesting that what they said could have been a death knell for their business. So where does this leave us with the teen vaping problem? Could this be enough to dampen use since it would cover the most popular flavors and the most popular vape method among teens, those pods like Juul?
3: It could potentially, at least in the short term, um, because typically the open tank, for example, tends to be adults who go in and use this. And um, well, mint has been popular, that would be taken off. But you, there's still a process where these companies and they've already lined up to can go through the FDA and um, get approval. So it's not like these are forever banned. It's going to be interesting to see going forward what happens with the FDA. Right. The harm reduction
1: argument. I mean, is the FDA going to decide as more science comes in on, on you know, what vaping, how vaping actually works in the body, and um, more science comes in on, you know, because most of the science is industry sponsored at this point. Um, you know, is what's the net public health benefit? Does it help people quit smoking traditional cigarettes, or is the, what's going on with the kids outweighing any public health benefits of, you know, what the, the, the We Vape We Vote crowd on Twitter, um, you know, sees you know, some of them feel you know, there are people out there who quit traditional cigarettes and vape and they feel that they're safer and they feel threatened by this. Um I was sort of surprised to find that world out there very vociferous. Um there I mean there were, you know, I, all the political um uh,
0: or really White House reporters who were following the President, they were all at the President's rallies. Yes. I mean they really had yeah, a big yes. impact. Yes. I mean he he moved way right. far from where he was in September when he said this is threatening
1: our kids and we have to stop it. Right. We sort of know how the former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, feels about this. We don't yet know how the current FDA commissioner who just started his jobs you know how you know FDA under under um, Commissioner Hahn is going to evaluate this and it's a long process it could take quite a while but while these pods try to get back on the market or which versions
3: of them are
0: have we all pretty much acknowledged now that the the, the the mystery vaping illness was likely caused by people vaping THC it and is more likely
3: but all the science has so far but held some that of up, people but right. we
1: don't know entirely yet. Yeah, Right. I mean, it seems to be an additive that was more into the marijuana pods, but that there were some people who claimed that they were not. that they. So there could have been black market contamination in both that was more prevalent in the THC than in the nicotine. I mean, there are a lot of other issues about nicotine. I mean, the, these pods have a huge amount of nicotine. And, you know, they could also have lighter ones. And, you know, I, I don't think we've seen the end of the regulatory fight. To me, a lot of this just – the way all
2: of this unfolded was such a prime example of the chaotic way this administration goes about doing things because, yeah, on one hand, they they announced this like very bold step that even Democrats were forced to admit like back in September, hey, this might be like a good thing. But of course – It was kind of initiated by this misperception of what was causing the vaping illnesses. And then we find out that it was caused by the marijuana products. And then, and then the administration, you know, it was very public that the administration kind of like walked this back. And then we expected the rule in November. And then, you know, he was meeting with advocates and all these conservative groups had some input. And then we finally saw the final rule in December. But it was the whole thing was like extremely chaotic. And I don't know if I were President Trump, I wouldn't have played it that way. But.
3: I, That's why, and then you get criticism Trump from both sides. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> he doesn't ask me how to conduct. Apparently, his, he
0: doesn't uh, ask most of his staff either. No, right. and this was
1: one of the few times where he had seen the first lady's influence. Where supposedly uh, Melania Trump had been quite, you know, they've got a preteen and or a teen, early teen, a he's twin, a teenager. And he's a teenager, now. teenager yeah. now. Um, a middle schooler, and and she had raised her concerns, and we had seen, um, supposedly the White House said and HHS said that she, you know, she had spoken up. They confirmed that, and um well, it <laughs> didn't turn out the way we thought it would a few months ago. And we should add that in the middle
0: of all of this, the, and we talked about this, I think the last time we did the news was that um, Congress did pass uh, a law raising the, the, the age the 21, all yeah. to 21. Yeah, all, I guess we call them nicotine products because vaping aren't really tobacco products, nicotine products to, to age 21,
3: which is that had been kicking which around means for McConnell a pretty long had time. really supported too in his kind of issue. In yeah. Yeah. So, all of interesting this, back there's back
2: really good news that cancer rates are down and it's largely caused by the decline in smoking. So, I mean, on one hand, we're all wringing our hands over this. But on the other hand, there's a lot of evidence that there has been a seismic change in how people look at smoking.
1: There's a lot we don't know about the science of vaping yet. I mean, it may it may very well, like in, in England, where they regulate it very, very differently. And it's a whole different regulatory system. and It's much more regulated. They have really embraced the um, harm reduction argument in England. And right. they, mm-hmm. I was in London just for a couple of days in November. And like people everywhere were vaping on the streets. I was like... <laughs> what? Um, I mean, they still smoke on the streets there. I mean, I was still, say, yeah, they still smoke, but they yeah. also, there were a lot of people, I've never seen so many e-cigs walking around on the streets of any place. Um, you know, it's really there very acceptable that it is a safer alternative. So, I mean, they also, their products are different. But we also don't really, you know, I've talked to a couple of scientists, i mean, not, you know, I'm not a scientist. We're all policy reporters, not science reporters, but every once in a while we talk to scientists. And the sort of mechanism, I mean, actually I was up at night, talking to Nora Volko this week. I mean, the mechanism of like, how how this vapour Interacts with your lungs and the mechanics of it. And what are the you know long-term cellular changes? We don't know, and we're not going to know for years. So it's another one that's going to be kicking around for the rest of our lives. <laughs>
0: All right, we well, have a long list. One, one more this week before we go. I want to do a quick catch-up on Medicaid work requirements. Uh, we have one state that's dropping its requirement. That would be Kentucky, whose Republican governor, who had pushed it, has been replaced by a Democrat. And one state, South Carolina, getting approval from the federal government to add a work requirement. I would add that South Carolina has not. Not fully expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So its work requirement would impact some people who would be newly eligible and some like low income parents who are eligible for Medicaid under pre-ACA rules. I think that makes South Carolina the first to extend requirements uh, to a non-expansion population. Does that sound right? Um, I know there have been other There have been no. some states other where it would have been
3: part of the traditional population.
0: Yeah. Most of the other states that want to implement work requirements have been blocked by the courts or they voluntarily held up their programs waiting for courts to rule. After a lot of backing and forthing, Utah has expanded Medicaid as voters approved in 2018. It took two years to, for that to work its way through, um, but it's also imposing a work requirement. Michigan's work requirement is apparently also taking effect as of the first of the year. Where are we with all these requirements? The Trump administration's continuing to push them. Courts are continuing to block them. Are they going to happen or we think it's going to be like abortion? They might happen in some states, but not others. It
1: depends on 2020. It just depends on 2020. If there's a Democrat elected, they're not going to happen. If there's a – if Trump is reelected, it will continue to get fought out in the courts and I can see the the current Supreme Court upholding this.
3: You Um, think if a Democrat's elected that they'll rescind the approvals of the waivers?
1: I I think that a lot of the states – I mean do you think there will be a legal
3: battle then if they – I think there will be a legal battle.
1: I think that the the groups that are fighting it now won't stop fighting it, and I right. you know, I don't wouldn't
3: think it will just be over if we get a Democrat. Like I think these states will say, "Look, everything's going to waiver approved, right?" But they, and, I and think so then be it'll be will yeah, be, sued, then be and, a legal it, battle, right?
1: And I think they'll be without a Democratic administration supporting them.
3: Yeah, um, and I, I do think though. With this, these court battles going on, I think we're also seeing kind of the the, the fight turn increasingly now to to the block grant, which we're expecting um, some guidance, Tennessee, but, but and beyond. And um, but yeah,
0: waiting uh, for the administration to right. decide whether it's going to it's going to let basically a state take control of take. More control of its federal money in exchange for In, in ways that could potentially
3: right. curb enrollment. And and so I think we're going to see that come more to the forefront as well as some of these um, Medicaid eligibility verification issues. So work requirements are very important, but you're seeing these other ways that the program could potentially be curbed in enrollment that are going to fight neck and neck, I think, with this as is an issue.
0: Yeah, there's also that an effort by the administration to sort recertification for uh disability programs, which link True. to, to yeah. either Medicare or Medicaid, depending on the program. Right. Um there there does seem to be an effort to to sort of move people off of programs or make it harder for them to stay on programs, let's put it that way. I think I think all of these things fall I, you know the work requirements also because it's not, as it turns out, most people on Medicaid who can work do work. The problem is not working, the problem is figuring out the bureaucracy
1: of reporting your hours. Right, That's right. what knocked yeah, so which many we people already off
3: saw in, the, in Arkansas. In Arkansas, right. where they had it, that became a real big issue. I and mean, there
1: are people who are on Medicaid who, who aren't working, but what the point is that the work—the fa- workforce p- participation rate among the Medicaid population is not that different from the population as a whole. It's a few percentage, right. percentage points different. And so the been, idea that you know none of them are working is not true. It's also not true that they're all working because they're not. But there's the legal status of disability when you actually have gone through through this multi-year process to be legally declared disabled versus people who have a lot of health problems, which is true of much of the Medicaid population that does make it difficult to work, but you don't fall into that technically declared. So if you look at the people who are not working, some of them are not in fabulous health. There are substance abuse issues. And also to be clear, there are provisions in most of these state laws that it doesn't actually have to be. I mean, I think it's fair to be clear that you don't have to actually have a job. There are also educational job training and volunteer. There are other activities. I think in Utah,
0: I think you have to show that you've applied for 48 jobs was so that forty six or
3: forty eight? It's, it's in the forties. Yeah. It's like a it's a week, some, a month, a year. It's what? some enormous number of jobs. I thought it was monthly. It was re- I mean, and forty jobs for saying that there are not even that many employers in their area to meet the requirements. I'm curious to yeah. see
2: how the courts land also in the different state, the ways the different states have approached this. Because if you look at a state like Arkansas, they've taken a much more heavy handed approach than say a state like Indiana. In Arkansas, I think right. you do have to report like monthly, and there are some exemptions, but fewer. But in like Indiana. It's basically all self verification. They don't really check up on you. It'd be pretty easy to game the system, but you've still actually seen people challenge that that law there. So that's kind of still. And Utah's kind of in
0: between. Yeah. The, the
2: the Arkansas and Indiana. Yeah. So this yeah. will also go on. Well, and everything
0: you know, as we say every single week, everything's going to end up in the courts. It's end up in the courts. We should all become court reporters. All right. So that is the news for this week. At least that's as much news as we could fit in. Now we're going to play the interview I did with Richard Harris of NPR about the latest bill of the month, and then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my former colleague from NPR, Richard Harris, who reported the latest bill of the month. Hi, Richard. Thank you for coming by. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to see you. So this month we have a really big bill for a really minor ailment. Tell us who the patient is and why she went to the doctor.
4: Her name is uh, Alexa Kasdan, and she lives in Brooklyn, and her doctor's uh, in a tony part of Manhattan. And uh, she was uh, she had a, a persistent head cold and scratchy throat, and she was going to go on a long trip and wanted to say, well, maybe I should just kind of get some antibiotics just in case. So. She went to the doctor wondering if it was strep, and uh, that's where the story starts. So I really identified with this
0: story because last June, the exact same thing happened to me. I was sick with a wicked sore throat and about to leave for a business trip, so I went to my out-of-network internist to make sure it wasn't strep, and I went back and looked up the bill, and the lab part of that visit was $30, of which I owed $9. But what happened here was not that, was it? (laughs) It was not
4: that at all. Uh, In fact, it was an in-network. Doctor, uh, so she paid a twenty-five dollar copayment to see the doctor, but the lab bill was twenty-eight thousand dollars and change.
0: What kind of test did they do that cost $28,000?
4: Well, they did a number of tests looking for odd viruses and weird bacteria and stuff. Uh, It's hard to imagine why any test would cost that much because actually uh, I asked somebody to look this up on sort of a database of test costs and it was like 20 times what would be the normal market rate of this and that's before the insurance companies start paying. If she had taken this test and had it sent to LabCorp which was her in-network lab, it would have been about 600 bucks that the insurance company would have paid. Still a huge amount of money for these tests uh, for a common cold, but nowhere near 28000 Did we
0: ever get an explanation of why these dramatic, you know, strange tests were ordered?
4: No. uh, She kept being uh, reassured by the doctor's office that, oh, this is routine. We do this all the time, nothing to worry about. And uh, part of the story was she she went on her trip. When she got back, there were a number of frantic phone calls and emails from her doctor's office saying, Blue Cross is sending you a check for $25,000 and change, and we want that money ASAP. In fact, we'll even send a messenger over to your house to pick it up. And, uh, and by the way, they were so magnanimous, they said, uh, even though there will be a $2,500 copay for you, you don't have to pay that. That was so nice of them. Uh, generosity in, incarnate, yes.
0: And the insurance company didn't question this?
4: The insurance company did not blink until I called them and said, hey, what's the deal with this? And they said, yeah. "Some basically, sometimes things slip through the cracks. Uh, I talked to an expert in this area who said, actually, most of insurance companies just sort of put these through routine Computer-generated uh, systems, and they don't—they don't even bother to look at the bills. So you'd think that a bill for that amount for such a common condition would have raised a flag, but it did not get tripped up. And this is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota because her partner, Alexa's partner, is insured uh, through that insurance company. So yeah, but once once I t- asked them about it, they said, "Whoa, that's a little unusual," and they actually put a stop payment on the check because as, as in a bigger rush as the. Uh, doctor's office was to get the check, uh, I think they were intimidated by some of Alexa uh, uh complaints to them. And they thought, well, maybe we should sit on this for a while and not cash it right away. So Blue Cross Blue Shield said it wasn't cash, so they put a stop payment. So uh, so things are, uh, things are in a state of limbo, last I heard.
0: So the insurance company is looking into it, as they say. That's right, yeah. Now, obviously, this was a combination of ordering tests that didn't appear to be necessary, and charging outrageously for them. But there also may have been a connection between the
4: doctor and the lab? Yes, that question I did not get to the bottom of, except I noticed that the lab was Manhattan Gastroenterology, which has the same phone number and addresses as the doctor's office. Uh, and so so it appears as though they may be running their own little lab. So I guess their idea is like, we could have sent it out to LabCorp, which then would have paid whatever, or we could do it ourselves and charge whatever we want, and maybe we'll get lucky and the insurance company will pay for it. That's, that's the best I could figure out there. And in terms of the tests themselves, I talked to a professor of family medicine and said, in 20 years, I've never, ever ordered these tests. And I can't imagine ever ordering these tests, because even if you find out that it's a certain kind of cold virus that's causing your sore throat, that's not actionable information. There's no cure for the common cold, right? So even the idea of running these tests was absurd to begin with.
0: So unlike a lot of our Bill of the Month cases, there was basically no financial exposure for Alexa Kasdan because, as you mentioned, the doctor's office rather magnanimously said they would not hold her responsible for her $2,500 portion
4: of the bill. But don't we all end up paying these inflated bills? Absolutely. Because, you know, if the insurance companies are having to pay those kinds of bills and they look at next year and say, what's the cost of insurance going to be? We better jack up our insurance premiums for folks. And if it's a small group, the premiums may be based on the experience of that group. So if you get a group that has a a string of bad luck like this, that could really be a noticeable increase in their premiums from one year to the next
0: what can you as a patient do to avoid some of this? I know Alexa Kazan is now sort of fighting it after the fact. Um, but I know when I went to the doctor, it didn't occur to me to ask if the tests were going to
4: cost five figures worth. And of course, in my case, they didn't. Right. And I agree. It, it seems uh, the advice I was given was ask if the tests are going to be done in network or out of network. It's like something I would never ask, right? It's like, it's like you know, are you going to, you know, go home and, and beat your spouse? I mean, there are kinds of questions you just don't ask the people. Uh so so that's one thing you can do if you're if you're really concerned about this. You can also just simply ask, what tests are you giving me and why? And uh, in a case like this, the doctor might have said, well, on second thought, I don't really need these tests. Maybe not in this exact case, but I think there are occasions where you could see a doctor saying, yeah, that's a good point. This is not really something that, that will really inform my medical treatment. And that happens a fair amount. That doctors just order things reflexively. And if you say, what are you going to make of this? What use is this data going to be? The doctors might say, yeah, Okay, we'll skip it. And uh, I've certainly experienced that in my own uh, medical experience. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to start with assuming that your doctor is not going to be trying to be uh, sort of playing games here, which... (laughs) Gouge you or the insurance company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, Richard Harris, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Good to talk to you. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health, all one word. Uh, Paige, why don't you go first this week?
2: Yeah, so this was a study that popped yesterday. A couple outlets reported it, but I was struck by the one at Kaiser Health News by Dan Gorenstein Leslie Walker. And this study is really interesting because it gets to this question that has confused and perplexed health policy folks for a long time, which is how do you help that population of people who are the heaviest cost for the healthcare system, who go back to the hospital over and over again? How can you help them? And the idea with this study was that if you take the most, these, these, you know, revisiting patients and pair them with a support system, so a social worker, worker or nurse, that that could help reduce those visits. So they took this population of 800 people, half the people got this extra support, half didn't. And then after a couple of years, they actually discovered, contrary to their expectations, that there was basically no improvement in the visit, the um, revisits by the patients that got the support. And so it really seems like it's kind of overturning the this hope that a lot of folks had that this would be a way you could help people who have, you know, who maybe struggle with homelessness or addiction or, you know, income issues to help them take control of their health. And so I think a lot of people are thinking that we're back at square one a little bit in, in terms of trying to figure out how to fix this problem. But it was a really interesting study. Um, and I recommend anybody take a look at it who's interested in this problem. It was
0: a very much hyped program for a long time. And so, I mean, it, and people are pointing out it's it's good that they actually did the rigorous study um, to see whether it worked. Um um, at at right. this point, before, you know, everybody started pouring a lot of resources or maybe could, could It changes policy decisions, and for I w- sure. I will point out that that uh, Dan Gorenstein wrote, wrote the story because he uh, hosts Tradeoffs, offs another health policy podcast. And I believe he has a whole episode on this very program and the study. Oh. So you can... Uh, I'll, yeah, and it's going to raise questions too.
1: about... This didn't work, but does that mean that something can I mean that addressing these high needs of these very sick people with very complicated, difficult lives, I mean, the question isn't well, we can't help them or it doesn't make a difference. It's like what is the iteration that that would help them? I mean, I think right. that's where the conversation goes because you know into we now know that. There's no doubt that people's life and where you live and how you live and your resources and everything does affect your health. We do know that. So we didn't figure out this. The Camden project didn't figure out how to fix it. But I think that you know the next iteration isn't necessarily throw up your hands and stop thinking about that. It's you know what is the smarter, better way of doing it.
2: Well, I agree that it's just as important that you no, have it's, research. It's, that very shows what doesn't work it's very interesting. It's very interesting because then you can avoid making poli- You know, investing in policies that may not make those changes you're hoping for. Exactly,
3: Stephanie. Yeah. Uh, I have a story uh, from the New York Times by Margot Sanger-Katz. Um, and it's uh, in the U.S. An angioplasty costs 32000 Elsewhere, maybe $6,400. And this was a really interesting story that ran in late December. It's based on the International Federation of Health Plans. And they put out this report looking at the cost of various procedures in the United States compared to other countries. And Probably no surprise that it's uh, much more expensive than the United States. It's the prices, right, stupid. Right. But what was really interesting was the degree of the price discrepancy was staggering. And what Margot does in her um, typical smart – um analytic way was kind of break out why that makes this issue so difficult for lawmakers to tackle, how much is at stake, and why people care so much more now because of these high deductibles. But um, it's it really is striking. I think it was an... The, I can't remember what the difference was with like an angioplasty. There was only one place I think where the US was cheaper, and that was cataract surgery. Maybe um, it because
0: it, Medicare pays for most of the cataract surgery in this country, right? And they right. actually set Hence
3: prices. The price pressure, exactly. It, it's really, it's short. It's a quick read. I would suggest looking it up. Joanne. Okay.
1: Well, I don't have a quick read. Uh, This is a a long New Yorker story called "A World Without Pain" by Ariel Levy, and it's about a woman who does not experience pain, physical or emotional. And scientists knew that there's certain genetic variations that makes you more impervious to pain, and um, and that they want to study it because for pain control, for anxiety, for other mood disorders. And yet, when you read this woman mean, she's always happy but i wouldn't want to be her (laughs) you know like
2: that sounds dangerous to not well yeah i mean she has to watch
1: herself because she won't if she cuts herself she won't notice she has to see the blood but or other i mean not having physical pain has some physical hazards she also doesn't really have emotional pain and you know it there's like there are very existential themes to this 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 piece is quite interesting and i loved her and she's always happy um She had a wonderful wake, happy wake for her mother. Cameron plans to leave her own corpse to science when she dies. Quote, they'll whisk the body away and stick us in a drawer somewhere and chop us up, won't they, she said. I don't mind.
2: I definitely have to read this. <laughs> yeah. I, it's the first thing I'm doing after this podcast. It was, it's it's really very funny. provocative. Yeah, yeah, it's that. very She's, provocative. Many
3: people who can't feel pain don't not necessarily have really long lifespans because, because they get her And she has. So that also makes this She's really 72. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Well, my, very cheerful.
0: Mine is much more pedestrian <laughs> and not nearly as happy. Uh, it's by Nicholas Florico from Stat News and it's called, Washington took a decade to approve an obscure drug pricing bill. That's a bad omen for more ambitious reform. And if that sounds familiar, I think it's because I said pretty much those exact words when we talked about the CREATES bill being included in this year's uh, end-of-year spending bill. For those of you who have forgotten or who don't know, the CREATES bill is a really, really incremental um, kind of drug pricing policy. It makes it harder for brand-name drug makers to use a loophole in the law to prevent generic companies from getting samples of the drugs to – figure out how to copy. It's been kicking around literally for a decade, and it took until now to get to the finish line. To quote from the story, which is an excellent summation of the tortuous route the bill took, quote, passing drug pricing legislation is almost comically difficult in Washington, even when the bill is smaller, staggeringly bipartisan and unopposed. So those who are, you know, happily predicting that Congress can do something big on drug prices this year, Read this story first.
1: I oh, know. The healthcare <laughs> gods in the sky might look down and this and say, 10 years, nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all
0: right. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. At joanne kennan. At Steph Armor One at PW underscore Cunningham. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.